Romans chapter 13. Last week we looked at the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13 and today we're going to look at the remainder of the chapter and to keep things in context I I usually do a little summary but it's only seven verses I thought let's just read it together in context and then we'll pick up in our Bible study in verse 8. So if you would follow along with me in Romans chapter 13 I'm going to read down to about verse 10. Romans chapter 13 verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's minister attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. I covered those verses in detail last week. It kind of sums it up in verse 7. Taxes refers to an annual tax like an income tax. Customs refers to a, a tax on things bought or sold like a sales tax. Fear refers to the reverence which produces obedience. And it says basically treat all official characters with respect and as obedient to your superiors. And then it says honor. It refers to that outward respect to your bosses and your parents and honor them. And to this point, Paul's speaking about our obligation to government and to those people who are over us in authority. But now he kind of shifts. He kind of turns it in verse 8. He's going to begin to speak about our relationship with each other, our relationship with fellow man. And take a look at verse 8. He says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not, shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. It says in verse 8, owe no one anything. So what does that exactly mean? Oh, no one anything. You see, some people read that scripture and they say, well, I think that means that we should never borrow money. We should never be in debt. And I, I, I come across that scripture, oh, no one anything, and I'm going to apply it to finances. So I'm going to use that and say, I'm never going to be in debt. And there's the scripture I'm going to use to do that. If that was you and you used that scripture, I can let you know that you'd be in great company. Charles Spurgeon believed that. Uh, he, he was one of the men that stood and said, yes, this is a reason that we should never go in debt. Hudson Taylor, the great ministry to China, he believed that in this scripture. However, I'm not so convinced that's exactly what he's talking about. If I had been praying or you've been praying, you know, Lord, I want a new house and I'm going to have to take out a mortgage for the house or a bigger mortgage. And, and I'm praying along and I'm trying to seek wisdom from the Lord. And, and you're saying, God, is, is this what you want? And you come across this scripture and you're, part of your prayer is, should I take or should I spend or should I go into debt for something? I think that vo- verse would speak pretty clearly to you. No, probably not. But in the context of the scripture, and that's what we try to focus on. What is, what is the context of what Paul's saying? 
in context, I don't think he's really talking only about borrowing money. I think it's much broader than that. I think it's much greater than that. In fact, Jesus actually permitted borrowing money, didn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, he was instru- when he instructed his disciples, he told them to lend to those who come to him to borrow, come to them to borrow from them. Now, I'm not saying that we should all run out and get into debt because I also know the scripture. I also know the scripture warns us of the danger and the obligations that go with debt. You see, I don't want to make this a, a message on debt, but it certainly needs something that we need to address here. And please understand, I'm not, I'm not condoning debt, saying just go on, get out and get whatever you want and, and put it on your credit cards because I believe that there's good debt and there's bad debt. There's wise debt and there's foolish debt. Credit card debt is almost always bad debt. It's a high interest rate. It's something that you want to stay away from. But yet there might be good debt. Perhaps it's a, it's a home mortgage. Perhaps it's a, a business loan. Might be, I said. There could be good debt. That, that, a home mortgage could be bad debt as well, but there could be a reason for good debt. There might be good debt. But in this section, I don't think Paul's just, he didn't shift all of a sudden from saying, all right, now I'm going to talk about finances. He, he's, he's got a broader thing going on. I believe he's addressing a much greater issue than financial debt. Certainly, you, we might take it and apply it there, but I believe it's much greater. I believe Paul's honing in on the very root of the problem. You see, he just talked to us about submitting to government, and we go, I don't want to do that. I don't like what the government do, does. What if the government's bad? What if the government doesn't use my money wisely? What if the government does this? What Paul says, I don't care what it does. You know, put yourself underneath of it. You see, Paul's honing in, and, and the problem is not coming under the authority of government. The problem is not breaking the law that he mentioned previously. The problem really with all of that, those are symptoms of something going on in somebody's life. Have you ever met somebody who doesn't like to submit to authority? Maybe some of you here, you go, I don't like anybody telling me what, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I am who I am, and I don't care what anybody says. You see, that's a symptom of something going on in your heart. You see, the greater problem that I think Paul's addressing here is a condition of the human heart. That's why he turns it right back to love. All the symptoms, all the things that he says about the commandments being broken, really what he says is this is a condition of your heart. What is the, what is the shape of your heart? What is the condition of your heart? Is there love in your heart? The problem is the human heart. Paul's saying essentially there's a lack of love in the human heart. The love that Paul is speaking about here, the Greek word is agapeo. Uh, it means an unconditional love. It's a sacrificial love. It's not the same love when you say, I love baseball and hot dogs. I love puppy dogs. It's not the same kind of love. This is a kind of love that Paul's speaking of that says, I will put others before myself. This is the kind of love that brought Jesus to the cross where he said, I will die for all of mankind because I love them so much. It's not just going, I really like this today. You see, in, in the English language, we have, a couple, we have a one word for love, and it's love. In the Greek, there's several different words for love. There's four of them, actually, that are used. But what this word, what this particular one means, it's a, sac- it's a self-sacrificing. It's an unconditional love. It's not saying just something simply. If we had this agape love if we had it in our life as much of it as we could if we had it all if we had it we would love our neighbors if in other words what Paul's telling us if I could love my neighbors unconditionally if I could love other people unconditionally do you realize there would be no desire to hurt them in any way there would be no desire to sin against them I wouldn't want to steal from them I wouldn't covet what they have. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to commit adultery because I realize I love my, my neighbors. I wouldn't want to be with their spouse. It, it would take care of all of the sin problem is what Paul's saying. He listed out some commandments. He said, you shall not commit adultery. 
You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. If we, in fact, could love unconditionally, we wouldn't commit those things because we would care too deeply about the people that we would be hurting when we committed them. You see, we wouldn't find ourselves gossiping because we love the person we're gossiping about. We wouldn't find ourselves coveting because we love the person, the thing that we were coveting. Murder? Well, of course I couldn't murder somebody I truly loved, and neither could you. Stealing? Could you really steal from somebody you had this unconditional love? No, you couldn't. You see, the question begs, though, where do we get it? How do we get this? It's a nice love to talk about, but you have to get it from the Lord. It comes from him. It's his love for you that when you begin to love him, he plants it in your heart. You can't do this on your own. You can't fake it. You can't pretend it. You don't have all of it that you need. I'm sure if I was to take a poll and said, all right, how many of you are completely unconditional lovers? You love everybody, all of your neighbors as yourself. I don't think anybody would raise their hand. And if you've got that down, as I've said in many studies, come see me afterwards because I want to talk to you about it. I want to learn for myself because what I find is I'm human. And when I fall back on my, human, my humanism, I find myself falling short. And I find myself becoming sarcastic. I find myself not caring. I find myself being terse or, or, or difficult or argumentative. And I find myself being those things. None of those things would occur if I could truly love the way that Paul's describing here. The way that Paul's telling me. He sums it all up like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Sometimes in our Christian walk, the Lord brings something into focus in your life. And you see, you know what, there's a, there's a sin in my life. And the Lord starts to focus on that. And he, he begins to draw it out. And he, want, and he, and he leads you to say, I want, I want you to stop thinking like that. I want you to stop acting like that. I want you to stop talking like that. I want you to stop, I want you to stop all of these things. And sometimes our focus can be so focused on that one thing that the Lord's trying to do, we miss the big picture. And Paul's trying to bring us back out and go, listen, if you will just start loving people, focus on love and you will see that all of these other things will take care of themselves. Just focus on loving one another. Now, I got to tell you something. As a guy, I don't really like that word. I kind of, well, it's kind of a sappy, this is a girl passage, right? It's, let, let's let the ladies, let them worry about love. That's not who it's written to. It's written certainly to the ladies, but it's written to the men too. You see, agape love is not a, a sappy, romantic uh, kind of love. It's a, it's a love that says, I care about you so much, I'm willing to help you. I'm willing to step out and do something for you. I'm willing to put myself in the, in the line of fire. I'm willing to, all right, maybe I'm going to receive some criticism from you. for even, You ever help somebody and then they criticize you for it? And you say, I was only trying to help. I was only trying to help. And they, you, you, you put it out there and they, and they hurt you. They, they say things about you. Agape love or agapeo love says, I don't care about that. I'm still going to try to help. It doesn't, it doesn't turn inward and go, all right, I'm done. That's it. Forget it. I've had enough. I'm out of here. Done. You're on your own. No, agape says, love says, I'll let the Lord keep working in their life, and I'm just going to keep loving them. Kind of like the mother's love for their child. How much does a mother care for her child? It's probably the greatest picture of agape love that we have on the earth. It's, there's probably no greater picture than what a, mother, the, what a mother will endure for her children or her child. They will do anything. Children have no idea. If, if you're young here and you don't have kids, you have no idea what it is until you have kids that you realize how much your parents really cared for you. When you have your own kids, then you're able to see that. But moms will go to great lengths. Sometimes kids wander. Drug addiction, stealing, all kinds of problems. Dads get frustrated. Let's throw them out. Let them stand on their own two feet. Moms, they're there for them. 
And, and just to make it clear, agape love doesn't mean just giving somebody whatever they want. It doesn't mean you don't put boundaries in place for things. It doesn't mean you don't, you don't you know, uh, set things up so, so they, they, they can just run over you and do whatever you want. That's not, what it, that's not necessarily what it is. Agape love means I'm willing to give anything of myself to help you. I'm willing to give anything of myself. But really, Paul's just reminding us what Jesus said, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said this in Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. He said, but when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, leave it to the lawyers, right? Asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You see, they thought they were going to trip Jesus up. I know, we can get him this way. He can't answer this. He can't put one above the other. So they said, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answers it, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You see, if you could even do that, then you would love everybody else. Do you really love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul? I, I want to, but the truth is we don't. We fall short. And Jesus understands that. He says, on, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Sum up Christianity for you. It's real easy. All the stuff, all the books that have been written about a Christian life and the life applications, how to do it. Love God and love other people. Simple as that. Why is that so hard for us? Why is that so difficult? Because we, we're sinners. And the truth is, the person that we love the most is myself. I'm always on my mind, right? <laughs> You're always on your mind. What can you get out of it? What's in it for me? I don't want to miss my sleep. When it comes to loving somebody, when it comes to serving somebody in ministry, I can tell you it is never convenient. You will ne it, it'll never be when you're ready for it. It'll never be when you're prepared for it. It'll always be when you're, when you're out of time, when you're exhausted, and when you don't have any le anything left to give, and then that phone come rings, that text comes across, and you go, I can ignore it, or I can love them. Now, I'm not saying there's not a time to not, not to ignore it, because there is. But there's also a time where you've got to go, you know what, I'm going to give all I have. I'm going to give all I have for that person. I'm going to help them all that I can. And I know what you're thinking when you talk about loving your neighbor. It's the old question, well, who's my neighbor, right? Well, who do I have to really love like this? You know, is it, is it my, my neighbor that really lives next door because we're having a dispute over our fence line right now? Or, or who, who, does, who is it maybe, who do we really have to talk about this? Listen, it's the people that you meet and you deal with every day. It's the people that you work with. Yes, it's your neighbor next door. It's your friends. It's your family. It's your relatives. It's the people that you run across every day. We're not going to exclude somebody in here. It includes our neighbors, coworkers, clients, everyone else that you come across. You know, depending on what your job and your, it's the people that you meet every day, what your career is. You see, it's easy for us to love in theoretical and in the abstract. And yeah, we, we do that. Yeah, it's easy to say that. It's easy to love that way. But if you could love perfectly, you would keep the law perfectly because you would never have a desire to hurt the Lord and you would never have a desire to hurt anybody else. The only debt we are to carry is the debt to love one another. That's what Paul's saying. The debt that we need to carry around is the debt to love one another. But the truth be told, probably not many of us this week, including myself, said, you know, Lord, would you really help me be more loving? Would you really help me to love people the way that you do? Lord, would you help me to see people the way that you do? Pray that prayer sometime. Ask the Lord to show you what people look like through his eyes. 
And you'll see the compassion that will move into your heart that you didn't have before. You'll look around and you'll see the addicts and the people that are homeless. And you'll see the people that are less fortunate than you. And you'll look around and see the problems that people have. And you'll, it'll break your heart because he's moving in. He's, he's going to show you what they look like in his eyes. How he cares about them. It's easy to do all the right religious things and neglect love, isn't it? It's easy to come to church and do all the things that we're supposed to do and just neglect love. It's, it's just, it's impossible. I can't do it. No, you can do it, and I can do it, but we need the Lord to help us do it. We can't do it on our own. Look at verse 11. And do this, and this is referring to what we just talked about and what's about to come. He said, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. In the last section of chapter 13, Paul's going to tell us three things. He's going to tell us to wake up, dress up, and grow up. That's what he just told us. Wake up, dress up, and grow up. Notice the word time, the very first time it appears. Okay? The typical word for time is chrono. It's where we get our word from, for chronograph or like your watch or a timepiece, something like that. That's not what the word for time is. What it is is kairos or kairos. And what that means, it means it's a season. It's a, it's, a, it's a time period. It's a season. So essentially what Paul's saying is wake up from sleep. You better know the season that you're in. You better know what's coming on. You better look around and see what's going on. You better know what time it is. And it's time for you to wake up because your salvation, he says, is nearer than you thought. Nearer. The word for sleep, it means to be lethargic, non-aggressive, to lead a lazy Christian life means you're just kind of wandering through life you're just just i'm lethargic it's christian yeah christianity is just something i do i gotta go to church it's mother's day all right i'll make mom happy you know yeah it's just yeah i believe but i'm just not really into all of that stuff it's just it's lethargy it's just it's it where does your faith and where does your where does your god hold in priority in your life is he at the top or is he tied with a few other things does everything else come underneath of the lord or is he tied with a bunch of other things? You see, Paul's saying it's the season to wake up from your lethargy, non-aggressive non Christian life, because your salvation is getting closer. You say, wait a minute, Rob, I don't understand that. I thought my salvation I got when I believed on Jesus Christ. I thought the moment I believed I was saved, and it sounds like the scripture here is saying that my salvation is getting closer. But didn't... When I believe, didn't, isn't my salvation done? No, not completely, not according to the scripture. According to the scripture, your salvation unfolds progressively, and I'll explain what I mean. The moment we open our hearts to Jesus Christ, our salvation is complete internally. You're secure internally, but, the, but externally, we're still waiting to get rid of this body and receive our spiritual body and receive our glorification. Let me put it to you another way to make it real simple. Think of salvation coming in three parts, if you will. And you've heard me talk about all these before. Justification, maturation, or some people call it sanctification, and glorification. 
Those three parts, justification, maturation, and glorification. Our justification is the removal of guilt and the penalty of sin from believing, from the believing sinner and bestowing of righteousness upon us. Justification means justified, never sinned. Justified, never sinned. But if you haven't noticed, you're still toting a body around with you, aren't you? You're still toting a a sin machine, if you will, because it wants to pull you away and, and drag you away into things that the Lord wouldn't have for you. But then all of a sudden, once you get saved, once you get justified, there's a maturation process, a, pre- a process or a time where Christians begin to mature, where you begin to what we would call grow in the Lord. Some people refer to that as sanctification, but I think I like to refer, refer to it as a maturing process. It's the continuous process by which the Holy Spirit uh, puts sin out of our lives. If you've been walking with the Lord long enough, you should be able to look back and go, I don't do those things anymore. I don't, I don't go those places. I don't talk like that. I don't think like that. There should be a change as you walk with the Lord. And, and sometimes it's slow. And sometimes it doesn't happen overnight. And it usually does. And it takes time. But the longer you walk with the Lord, you should be able to look back and say, that's who I used to be. And this is who I am today. I'm not the same person that I used to be. People should, that knew you when, before you were a Christian should be shocked when they meet you as a Christian. It should surprise them. They should be, as a matter of fact, I'll tell a quick story. I wasn't, I, I might not have time, but I'm going to tell anyways. A couple years ago, I was down in Florida and they have the, what's called the Florida Turnpike. Have you ever been there? And it's like, it goes north and south. In the middle of the north and south lanes, there's a rest area. And I stopped at this rest area uh, to go to the bathroom and get something to drink. And all of a sudden I hear from, and, it, and you have, it's pretty crowded. All of a sudden I hear somebody yell to me, hey, Rob. I'm like, who's, there's got to be somebody else. And I look and it was a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in years. And I, he, called, he came over and we said, hello, and how are you doing? And he said, so what are you doing now? You know, where are you at? And he, he, he assumed I was still in law enforcement somewhere down in Florida. I said, no, no, I'm a pastor. And without hesitation, he goes, you? <laughs> and then I went on to share Christ and talk a little bit. But he was shocked because that's not the, what he looked at. Who, who he knew in my old life wasn't the same person that I am today. You see, there's a maturation process that happens in the life of a believer. But there's also a glorification coming, right? Anybody completely glorified here yet? No, no, we know that. There's a glorification. There's a transformation of our bodies at the rapture, where when you go to meet the Lord into perfect bodies of a new nature. You see, that's what we're waiting for. That's what Paul's talking about. He said, your glorification is close. And let me tell you, if it was close in Paul's day, we're closer. Because it's been a couple thousand years almost. We're closer than Paul was. He's speaking here of our glorification and because we can look around at the world. He says, look around at the world and tell me what you see. He said, do you see the seasons that we're living in? We need to wake up. We need to realize we are close. It is getting closer and closer. And when I look around at the world today and I look at biblical prophecy today and I watch it all unfold, you think you got Russia and you got Iran, you got all the things that are going, you got North Korea and all the things and how they all can kind of possi- could possibly fit in. Nothing needs to be fulfilled before the Lord was to come back. There's no, nothing else we're waiting for. You go, man, it could be soon. It could be soon. We need to wake up and start loving people. That's what we need to be doing. But Paul also tells them to dress up. He says, verse 12, the end of verse 12, therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry, drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. 
I like this, what Paul shows us. He gives us the picture of putting on and taking off. So let me ask you this question. What are you wearing this morning? You go, well, I'm wearing a shirt. And we're glad you're dressed, by the way. (laughs) But no, no, not talking about clothes. What are you wearing this past week? What did you put on? What did you put on? Did you put on drunkenness? Did you put on revelry? Wild parties, unrestrained indulgence? Did you put on lewdness? I mean, sexual promiscuity. Did you put on sexual immorality? Did you put on lust? Immoral living, completely lacking restraint. Did you put on strife? Are you quarreling with somebody? Are you the type of person that's always in a battle with somebody? Are you, are you putting on a bunch of drama and every time you go there, every, every, there's drama everywhere you go? Everybody, it's everybody else's fault but yours. You can't keep a job. You keep moving from place to place and it's always somebody else's fault. Listen, you're usually the problem. I'm usually the problem. I make more problems in my life than anybody else it does. The problem with leaving and just going somewhere else is you've got to take yourself with you. You can't leave yourself behind. Did you put on envy? Did you come in here this morning wearing envy and you're jealous of somebody? Maybe you had an argument with your, with your spouse on the way to church this morning. It happens all the time. And you get to church and you clean everything up and you go, all right, close the door, smile, everything's good. You know? I only know that because I, my wife and I don't drive to church together anymore. We leave separately a lot. <laughs> but I also understand how the enemy works. And those are the mornings, you know, from Saturday night till Sunday after church. We don't talk about family things or issues. We know that those, that's a time that I've got to get ready to teach. And I don't need to be worrying about all that other kind of stuff. We, she'll hold it until Sunday afternoon and we'll talk about it. If there's something that needs to be brought up. You see, we came in here wearing different things. You might have come in here wearing some, maybe you wore a garment of praise this morning. Maybe you were praising God this week. It's not all bad. You probably wore some good things. But the chances are we probably also put on some bad things. We put on a few bad things. And therefore, Paul says, cast off the works of darkness. Take them off. Take them off. Don't be carrying around these works of darkness. And he says, put on the armor of light. Put on Jesus Christ. Put on garments of praise. Put on thanksgiving. Put on Bible study. Put on devotions. Put on these things. You say, I love it because God just doesn't tell us here what not to do. He says, I want you to replace these things with something good. So if you will take the things of, of negative or, or ungodly or unholy or sinful things that you fell into this past week, and you will say, I'm going to replace that thing from now on. When I have that thought, I'm going to read the Bible or I'm going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to replace it. I'm not just going to stop doing it. You see, your focus, don't, don't shift your focus to the bad thing. Shift your focus to the good thing, which is love in Jesus Christ and filling that bad thing, replacing it with something good. That's what he's talking about here. Get dressed up. Get dressed up. Cast off these things. Don't walk in here wearing them. And by the way, if you came in here this morning wearing uh, some of these things, you're going to have an opportunity to cast them off and take them off. I like the picture. It's just like putting on an outfit. You got up this morning and you said, well, what am I going to wear to church? And you picked a shirt and you picked the pants or a skirt or whatever it is you put on. You got dressed and brushed your teeth, brushed your hair. Well, we hope you brushed your teeth. Put on your deodorant and all that kind of stuff. You got to pick it up, right? You got to pick out what you wanted. Do you know it's the same thing spiritually? When you wake up tomorrow morning, you can pick out, I'm going to be in a bad mood. I'm going to be in a mood of thanksgiving. I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to give my wife or husband a hard time. I'm going to aggravate them or I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to lift them up. You get to choose what you're going to wear. That's cool about it. We get to pick. Look what he says. It's time to grow up. Wake up. Get dressed. Mature in the Lord. Look at the last half of verse 14. Make no provision 
for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Make no provision for it. Don't make any, don't make any plans to the sin, to, to sin. Provision is the act of thinking about or planning something. Do you ever plan to sin? Well, when my spouse goes away, or I'm going to have some alone time, I'm going to have some me time, I'm going to go, whatever it is, stop making provision for the flesh, Paul says. Chances are that we make provision. And we like to excuse it. Well, I'm just cranky today. Everybody's cranky once in a while, right? Or I'm, I'm just tired, and when I'm tired, I'm cranky. Or well, I'm hungry. When I'm hungry, I'm cranky. Or whatever the reason is, we like to make excuses and make provision. It's okay. No, it's not. Take it off and put on Jesus Christ, is what the Apostle Paul's saying here. Why? Because our redemption draws near. We need to pay attention to the times and the seasons. 